Hello and welcome to the How Might We Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Scally, as always. Now, on today's episode, I have Isabel Sachs. She's the director of I Like Networking. I Like Networking is a leading career platform for women and non-binary people in the creative industries. And I thought I'd get her on the podcast because I think something which props up a lot in uh, discussion about the creative industries is how opportunities are distributed and the lack of diversity across various subsectors of the creative industries. And I think networking, mentorship and social capital are huge inputs into that problem. And I think Isabel's work, which I've experienced firsthand um, at a workshop here in Hackney Wick with a company called A New Direction. She was running uh, a session with a group of, of people there. and It was really um, dynamic and interesting, and I thought she'd be able to come in and really give some uh, interesting perspective um, due to her acuity on this topic and her um, work on the ground in this space. So without further ado, here's the How Might We Sessions with Isabel Sachs. Isabel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, your work, I Like Networking, I've been fortunate to somewhat take part in a workshop. I think it was end of last year, maybe. I don't know. Um, so I'm familiar with your work. But if anyone isn't familiar with I Like Networking and your practice, what is the mission? Okay, so I Like Networking started as a mentoring program with networking at its core for women and non-binary people in the creative industries or who wanted to be in the creative industries. It was launched during the first sort of lockdown and it evolved into what I like to call now a career platform for the creative industries. And so our work is sort of twofold. We work with people in the creative industries or who want to be in through mentoring schemes and providing resources and opportunities and trying to be the networker for everyone and bringing opportunities and people together. And then for the industry at large, we offer opportunities for them to engage with this audience so our mentees can join a talent collective where companies can reach out directly to them. They can post jobs that our audience can see. We do a ton of events and workshops on networking and other teams. So it's a sort of twofold a strategy to try to connect the industry and the talent and see if we can find a way for everyone to improve the groove industries together. Yeah, it's a really noble cause. What was the, the sort of why now for you? Like what's your history up to that point and what was the decision that made you go, I want to start this thing? Oh God, it was so, it, it was random almost, but. Those um, are the best things. I've been working in the creative industries for 18 years. So I've just turned 37. I started, I think I was 17 or 18. I had I was studying international relations in Brazil. I thought I was going to be a president or a minister, like <laughs> chill goals. But to be fair, the year before, I also thought maybe I'll be a history teacher or a set designer or an artist or a psychiatrist. So I wasn't really sure. Dreaming was, big, though. I like yeah. it. Yeah. And I... <laughs> 
hated school. <laughs> Politics was really boring. I ended up taking electives in like history of cinema and Foucault and Nietzsche and like very useless things. But I mean, no offense to anyone. I was going to say mind altering. But yeah, not practical skills sure, as yeah, okay. people would have liked me to do. I started like working in film, then I ended up getting a gig at an art gallery, then worked at a film festival in Poland. So my whole life has been in the creative industries. Once I was in, I never left. Hmm. In 2014, I moved to London. I sold the company that I started in Brazil, which was a production company, mainly working with theater and music. And I started my career from scratch in London. It was really hard. London mm. really beats you up down. It's, <laughs> it's like, you. do you really want to be here? Do you really want to be here? Because yeah. they're going to try to make you leave. Uh, and in 2020, I was working as a freelancer with Tomorrowland Festival. So that didn't go really well because the music festivals in 2020 were not the best business to be in. Not a vintage year for music festivals. No, and so I lost my job along with everybody else. Everyone was freaking out around me. You know, we're all freelancers. No one got almost any support. That was It was so problematic. And, you know, my friends who had kids, most of the women were doing most of the labor. And I don't know, it was just kind of a very complicated time for the industry. A lot of people were complaining. And at one point, my cousin who also lives in London and works in film, told me, I don't know how I'll ever get a job now. Everything happens because you need to know someone who knows someone to get anywhere here. And I hate networking. I would pay someone to do it for me. To which I responded, I think I actually like it. I don't know. Maybe it's not that bad. And I realized this was actually an issue. Like so many people were rallying around me, my network, and I'm using my air quotes, quotes here to support me during this time where I had no jobs, etc., And I was trying to support my own sort of community that I realized, what if people really don't have that? What are they going to do? So I started talking to people that I knew and gently nudged or highly encouraged my friends in this sector to see if they could offer time to support someone who might be in need of support. Because everyone was complaining but it wasn't doing anything. And so the mentoring program was born out of that. And I thought it was going to be a one-off thing, but because of the demand that it had right away, it kind of kept evolving. And now here we are. Nice. So it's kind of a mixture of it gestating over the years, maybe, and then an aha moment at that point. Like when you think about the other company you, you set up, was there, I guess now post-rationalizing, can you see that you were observing the thing you're trying to solve in that company, in that industry, and it sort of all adds up to this moment? and. Or, or was yeah. it kind of like a, whoa, actually, aha? Uh -huh. I, th I think, well, it's funny because networking is not a word I've ever used in Brazil. It's an American, it's a English word, right. word. And I never used that term in Brazil. I used to just, I don't know, like you would just go meet people or you had to know people. I don't know. But also because I started young, I my career there evolved by just knowing people. I never had a CV. I didn't know what a cover letter was ever. Okay. Uh, so, but my first company was really about solving artists' problems, artists that I believed in, and that was there. But it was a plan. I had a business plan. I had Excel spreadsheets. I knew how much money I needed, and it was a very different process than this one, which is a social enterprise. And it started out of 
completely the need or what I saw was what the industry needed. And then I still kind of learn every day <laughs> because this needs changes and I never had worked with anything that way before in terms of, you know, thinking about talent acquisition, recruitment, HR practices, none of those things were ever part of my brain because I was a producer for most of the time. So, but I guess the, the skills are all transferable. Of course, it's just a different field and a a new way of running a business. Yeah. So you would say you're probably a creative first, maybe, and then that sort of because it's you, you said that about the CV covering letter, which I think is it's a critical point to make because in so many creative industries, the CV and cover letter is sort of a non-entity. You, you, people know you. People connect you, you're good at something, someone has an opportunity, they plug you in. And I guess in many ways what you're trying to solve or, or, or a problem you're trying to address somewhat flies into that and says there's an issue there because that restricts the, the funnel of people who can access opportunities if you don't have the ability to network or grow your uh, social capital. A hundred percent is about the social capital, the Pierre Bourdieu. Is that the, but there we go. Yeah, this is a thing. Like even to find the information that you need to progress, that is already sort of there are gatekeepers even around there. And I I don't necessarily think it's a you know most people are mean and don't want to let go. I think it's just the way the industry happened to have evolved, and right. but we do need to address that because we are keeping a lot of people out. Um, and that, you know, and that's my thing. Obviously, that's my main rent. I think addressing representation in general in the creative industries is the most important thing <laughs> to address representation everywhere because that's what shapes everything we see, we hear, we listen. And yeah, like it doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, it's people making those things. And so who are the people and who who is allowed to tell or share something? Yeah, the gatekeepers, right? who decides? Um, so yeah, and I think it's, it's funny though, that to have that conversation with someone and then say, I hate networking and you go, you know, actually, I think I might like it. And it's, it's it sounds kind of novel, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fun point and a clear point to make. Cause so many people just don't, the term, the concept, the feeling they get when they, they, what they imagine when they hear that word versus what it can be, I guess is there's an asymmetry there, isn't there? Cause I mean, when I started work, it was, um, business cards um which Same. i always ha i never liked that and i think even when they asked me do you want some i said no i'll just do the email or my instagram in the early days of that but they still pushed it on me um and i think that sort of negatively informed my feeling behind it because it felt as though i was a card <laughs> rather than a person and it was just how many cards can you give out or you know whatever the mission was yeah um, and then you don't even remember who you spoke to and what was the point anyway right. yeah yeah they get back in touch with you and you just have to try to play off that you know who they are and why you asked them to get in touch with you in the first place um so you're, you're helping network evolve which is great networking evolve but so for, for the idea behind the podcast we always frame um the dialogue around uh, how might we challenge uh, a problem statement and based on your experience, um, which we'll sort of use as an anchor for the conversation, we're going to frame the conversation around how might we change the creative industry's fallacy, um, which I guess before we venture on, it'd be interesting to sort of your definition of what that fallacy is or what you see as the biggest components of that fallacy in the perspective of your work with 
I like networking. Okay, so I think the main fallacy is that the creative industries are undervalued by society in general. And the problem is that you need them to create every single thing that changes the world, like innovation, and it's just, <laughs> but it's not valued. And so we end up in this industry where there's a ton of people wanting to do work. A lot of people end up working for free. Salaries are historically very low. And in some types of the industry, like the performing arts, there's the cost disease, right? What they call that, some economists coined in the 60s where the cost of putting up a production didn't accompany inflation in general so right. it's almost we're getting to a point in some areas that it's prohibitive to work in a creative industries because it doesn't allow you to actually have a life and most of the industries happen in very expensive cities but they are only this expensive because of the creative industries that don't get enough salary or money or incentives to exist and, you know, yeah. develop. So I think that's the main thing. Mm. Um, and I always say this to people, the most, one of the most important people in the last, say, 10 years, maybe 20, who definitely changed how everybody lives was Sir Johnny Ive, or is Sir Johnny Ive because he's alive, <laughs> um, who designed, uh, amongst other things, the iPhone. And he is a designer. <laughs> He's not a person who studied chemistry or engineering or and went to MIT and right. none of those things that a lot of, I guess, um, legislation or media wants us to believe that that's the for sure path of changing the world or having security or whatever. No, it's a creative person who changed it and. You need that. But for you to have one Sir Johnny I creating the iPhone, you need to foster a whole ecosystem and it's just not valued. And, and it, then it's really hard to bring new people in and it just keeps kind of eating its own tail. Sure. It's that, well, using Steam uh, or STEM and then you add the arts into it to create that. And it is that feeling, I think, oftentimes in, uh, if you think about, who this issue might affect and everyone in society's perception of the arts or the creative industries is, is multifarious. And I think that is how I maybe um, see it and interface with it, certainly with younger people, really young people in schools, of course, um, arts or creative education has been sort of devalued, value mm -hmm. as you, you talked about. Um, but then we see all this growth in the creative industries that in, in the economy and its growth seems to be quite continual and becoming more important for uh, the economies in, in many in major Western um, cities. But then you sort of wonder where there's that power law thing that will happen there, right? So if all those young folks from you know, maybe uh, um, you know, lower-income families or you know, different ethnic backgrounds don't see these opportunities as something for them, it kind of confirms the value point because paradoxically they'll just go, well, the value is all being generated by people that don't look or sound or behave like me. But it's because that input is just not fluid yeah exactly yeah i guess the value point right and then you talk about salaries and, and, and of course there is a precarious nature to some creative work we can't um, be disingenuous right we we all know no. creative folks who are struggling for their art or uh, even quite uh, you know visually if you check their instagram followers and the work that who they work for you'd be thinking you've gone clear you've made it 
And then they're like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm two projects not happening away from moving back to my parents' house. A hundred percent. Right. And that's a pretty hard thing to swallow. Yeah. Do you, do, do you see that a lot when you're, when in, from the networking perspective and or building that esteem maybe for women and non-binary people, do you, does that precariousness of the work, is that something that really weighs on people? A lot, especially mm. for people who take on the brunt of caring for anyone in their family, that be the kids or uh, another family member. It tends to lie with women still, um, not just from an anecdotal point of view but statistically speaking which yeah. is really complicated and women drop out of the workforce usually when they are actually building their leadership within their career right because you know they go in you work for a few years and then you will see that in a lot of subsectors in the creative industries there's quite a, a lot of women and perhaps more diversity at the bottom of the organizations in terms of senior seniority and then at the top is still sort of the same people that have ever been before with the same privileges because they can, you know, take on not leaving the roles for lack of, you know, good payment. They can afford to be there. And this is, it's complicated, right? Like I moved to London. I'm from Brazil originally, as I mentioned, and I'm from Sao Paulo, which is not the prettiest city. And I wanted to move to London. I... I've been to a lot of really nice parts of Brazil, the coast, Bahia, Rio. I did not move to London for the nature, let's be real, <laughs> or the weather, or the beaches of the UK, with all due respect. Uh. You come here because of the creative industries. You That's that's what sells it. People want to come to see Tate, to go to the theater, to, you know, whatever, to go to Glastonbury. Mm. And who creates this? Wealth. You know, we are seeing now Taylor Swift and Beyonce are both, I don't know, every time they travel, raise something like 1.5% of the yeah. profit of each city they go through. So, and I'm I'm being really crude with the values here because obviously there's the value of the creative industries in general of the storytelling and the stories that are told and the representation and the way that we, you know, exist in this world. But I'm my point is more like why since we're not going to convince people to value us for that we should try to convince them with more pragmatic things yeah right you Got know it. and it's it's very clear in my brain so it's hard to understand why there's this disparity yeah well, I, I think i saw a thing on your um whether it was yours or i like networking but it was um i think it was even the website when you talked about um the statistic of women uh, 14 to 38 percent mm -hmm. less likely to have Strong network. Um, strong network in comparison to, to men. And we've talked there about the sort of general uh, trend of things, the, the sample path. And then we think from your perspective, when you look at something like something like COVID, for example, um, and how that, I guess, compounded many uh, trends in the world of work, um, maybe less so in the creative industries, perhaps, because you still maybe have to go to a space to produce work, for example, versus yeah. sitting on a laptop, although, of course, you can still produce work from a laptop. But wh where do you see things like that, you know, things like fat tail risk, like COVID or other things which are, you know, unknown unknowns, which completely change the way the world works and how we see things. When you think about women in the workplace, how do you see the impacts of COVID long lasting? Do you think it will be a net positive in that space? Or do you think actually, certainly for the younger generations who maybe lost some of that period of building network, how do you see the 
the net net of those factors. Yeah, so I'm going to start this by saying that when COVID started, I told everyone not to worry, it's going to take two months max. <laughs> so Prediction I one. Don't, yeah, I'm not the best. No one got it right though, so you're all good. Future predictions. That said, we know that there was a, there were a lot of reports coming out that deemed one of the economic recessions a she-session. Oh wow, um, I never heard that. Mm, yeah, because it really hurt women way more than men. We are still dealing with that. The jobs haven't been recovered in the, quite the same way. The issue with those reports is that they tend to focus on very specific sectors of the society in terms of what counts as work. Creative industries are almost never counted on it. Mm. Even if even the greater economy, which is this bazillionaire thing you know people don't think about tiktok as a creative company but what is it it's just literally powered by creatives Mm -hmm. but anyway i digress i think covid has shown a lot of sectors that remote or flexible working is not only important but it is essential to be part of the conversation so that we can include more people in the workforce for longer and allow them to develop. Now, there is the other side of that, of people that didn't learn how to work with colleagues. I think there's, I learned everything that I learned in the creative industries because I was in film sets, I was running around, I was, you know, picking up the phone in this art gallery because I didn't know anything, literally anything. And I had some, this is why I'm really passionate about mentoring, some people who were never my formal mentors, but peers who took me by my hand and were like, this is how you do things, or this is the person who programs this festival, or if you want to get this job, this is who you should talk to. And I've met those people in real life. I also met amazing people and great friends through LinkedIn and Instagram. But I think COVID is a challenge. It has hurt a lot of this society it has hurt most of the live industry in the creative industries and we're still seeing the cuts to it and so i think we need to probably have some investment or someone really taking care at it like looking carefully because we can't just have the taylor swift and beyonce stewards because for them for them to exist we need a lot of independent venues all of that that have been closing closing at a really fast pace we are seeing a massive shortage of skilled workers in the film industry, in TV, in theater, because they just left because there were no jobs. So I think this will take a while to be recovered. But I think the notion of flexible working, even though a lot of people are pushing against it. Yeah, it feels like it, right? I think we're I think they're gonna hopefully lose. Right. <laughs> There's um there's a very clear movement, but we do need to think about how we then present opportunities for people, especially young people, then to network and be in spaces where they can learn from others and access that social capital because you really need that. I think not only in a very pragmatic way to just progress in your career, but because building your life on your own is really hard. Like it's good to have friends and people supporting you, right? Like yeah. at least for your mental health. Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, I think, I don't know, I think you'd be a perfect person to explicate the point, but I always think mentoring, I think, as a word is often maybe not always equally understood. I think a lot of the time, certainly 
my pals, whenever they would think of getting a mentor, it was almost this free life coach they were trying to search out for. Um, and they couldn't, I'm going to get the best person I can think of and they're going to give me all their time and I'm just all this stuff. But you have so many informal mentors in your life and, and those are just a choice points when you need, you know, you're struggling with something and you just go to someone because they have maybe seniority or experience. But oftentimes they are the inflection points, aren't they? Because they just, they've experienced something and they can tell you a mistake they made to help you maybe not make it. And they can also just kind of cut a bit of a path out for you to say, you know, that it's not that deep or just avoid it. But I think that certainly in work as well, and maybe in larger institutions, maybe there's more opportunity for things like mentoring. But the creative industry is oftentimes it's really small companies or freelancers. Yeah. And so your network is the whole creative industries and your mentored catalog is the whole creative industries. But that probably makes it even harder because then how do you pick the right person and how do you approach them? And do you, do you, do you, is that something you teach through the, the work is like the best ways to approach something like that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, do you find that people have very different ideas about how to do it? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there is a confusion about mentoring and coaching. In general, coaches have accreditations that tend to be very, exp very expensive. Right. And they come with a set of tools and it's a very structured relationship. Mentoring can happen in many ways. It can be a one-off session. It can be an informal mentoring. It can be peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, which I think it's very valuable and people forget. But you're right. Like the creative industries, I think in 2020 was 40% of freelance workforce in the UK. Yes, yeah, I right. would assume that, that that is steadily growing with everything that has happened with companies that closed and yet the organizations are small. Everyone is overworked and underpaid. So they don't have usually capacity to then think about those things as much as we would like them to. Um, and I think seeking out support in different formats, it's really valuable. Mentoring is a relationship based on the exchange of experiences. So the mentor doesn't need to be older than you or more experienced than you. They just might have an experience that calls to you and relates to what you're going through at that time. Right. The Financial Times has an inverse mentoring program where younger employees are oh, cool. right, so, um, mentor older people. So it's a, I think it's almost an extension to networking when you see networking as sharing and adding value to a community you are a part of. Mentoring is just doing that in slightly different ways or usually a more structured manner. And yeah, that's definitely something that yeah. we, yeah. And most, it, it is a two-way relationship just like networking everyone gains from it when it's a good match so yeah i highly encourage everyone to seek out a mentor or peer-to-peer -peer mentoring opportunities yeah and so do you think when you think of your your community of you know, 35,000 strong and specifically the, the 5,000 women and non-binary people who have been upskilled through your work you think about the system at large and interventions that can uh, or constraints to optimize in the system do you think mentoring is probably one of the vectors which offers the most opportunity to dispel or, or create positive change in the sense of the diversity in the workplace and opportunities yeah i yeah. think so i i think it's a it's not the only thing obviously we need policies implemented as i'm sure you know to change a lot of those things um and we can get on to that but i think from our experience we have directly mentored around 700 people in the past three years through one-on-one -on -one mentoring and also group mentoring. And we 
have from the past year, we have some really great stats of I think over 80% found new opportunities because of the mentoring. Uh, over 95% uh, have expanded their network by I don't know how much and all the mentors are recommended the program to mentor again. We've had mentees who became mentors already oh, nice. in the past three great years. Great cycle, yeah. Um, so I, you can see the difference because sometimes all it takes is someone to show you the way and believe in you. Mm. It can be pretty hard, you know, we doubt ourselves a lot. There is no clear path in the creative industries either. So, But yeah, I think it's a good mechanism yeah, yeah, mechanism. But we can rely on it to yeah. change it, basically. Yeah, I guess so. I guess there's just something in it to me where I think, um, certainly, as I experience, well, A, building studios with lots of creatives over the years, being a musician and doing lots of other projects, I always felt like, and we just we briefly touched on it before, earlier on, but the idea that I think when I looked back, I felt as though I had some crazy agency or free will to get me to all of these opportunities and then i quickly after double clicking mm -hmm. into it realized pretty much someone else had asked me to interview for something or flatly just asked me to take the job and i sort of felt as though i'd been this you know, I'd, i'd done this great <laughs> virtuous circle of activity but it was so dependent on the the network of the people around you who saw that you were doing good things and but it's about the visibility and and they sort of became I guess my mentors, um, because now I look back and I'm really close friends with these people, and, and and sort of now I just think of my friends as my mentors in many ways. But that's yeah. sort of the optics that in the beginning I didn't see that. It felt like quite a formalized thing. I've got to sit in a room and someone's going to like, <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? Yeah, you know, the careers coach or something. But it's also one thing that I always say it to everyone is no one's going to advocate for your success as much as you. I right. think really no one. So. The world is not fair. We're not going to get what we expected just because we got good grades. You know, that's not how it works. But if you don't advocate for yourself and learn how to put your best foot forward and fight to be in the rooms where things happen and, you know, these networks can help, nothing is going to change because the goal is to get more diverse people at the top or, you know, in change-making positions in these organizations. And even our current mentors, I see them as industry leaders who have to them after they've experienced mentoring someone who might have come from a completely different background they become better leaders i think and can help implement new policies within their organization so i think it is important in that way but i wouldn't disregard what you've done but i think sure. if you didn't go after things you wouldn't they yeah, may maybe they would have fallen in your lap but probably not Still in the random. same way yeah. yeah you have to also say yes and progress and do things, right? But to that point about personal brand or being your own or your biggest cheerleader, for example, I mean, we think about maybe what others think and feel, um, people's worries out there. Say if we think about an early stage career person who's trying to get a job as I don't know a, a graphic designer and maybe they're quite introverted and because usually a lot of creatives are that way aren't they they're probably very creative thinkers but they're not maybe at the some some of course will be but some aren't that's it's, I won't generalize but do you think that's when we think about how to present your personal brand and be an advocate on all these platforms is it essential is it something that you think 
when you speak to people and they go, well, you know, I just don't feel comfortable with it and I don't like it and it's, it worries me. Is there something that goes, well, it's, it's just going to be way harder for you or is that just sort of a false narrative, do you think? I don't think it's essential. I think having an online presence, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a personal brand. Uh, you can just have a platform where you connect with other creatives right. and you don't need to put your face there. You can You don't need to post that you're delighted for anything on LinkedIn. Um, it's, <laughs> it's totally, I, I, I'm delighted all the time. Yeah, on LinkedIn. everyone's delighted. I am very delighted, but um, <laughs> I am delightful. I <laughs> but no, that I, I think it, you, there are two things. One, like anything else in life, networking or putting yourself out there, you practice, right? Confidence is something you can practice. Some people are way more confident than others naturally, but a lot of people just work on it. Um, that said, I think learning how to network and have good people skills is essential. You might be the most brilliant human of all times. All businesses are made of people and people work with people. Mm. So it's really great to have some people skills. Yeah, It's going to make your life nicer, if not better, which I think is a lot already. But you don't need to have a personal brand. You can just have a community that you find elsewhere. I know uh, someone who was a coach, in uh, really a coach. She worked in uh, disorder eating programs and she never used Instagram to build her business. She only had blogs and word of mouth and newsletters. She wasn't comfortable with Instagram. It wasn't her thing. She built a very successful business nonetheless. So you can find an alternative. Um, there is no secret bullet. If there was, everyone would be doing that. Like if you scroll through Instagram today, you're going to see 10 reels of people claiming to know how you can make six figures in three hours. And yeah, I... You know, yeah, like that's those. not the thing. So I think it's a balance of doing what's comfortable, but also putting yourself a little bit out there. But definitely learning how to advocate for yourself is essential in whatever format that may be. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And and so many people now, I think it's it's strange to think this because it was so part of what getting into the modern world of work was. But going to events and speaking to people is really underrated, I think, now. Because yeah. everyone's trying to grow hack the platform but everyone's got those channels now, everyone's using them, but to actually go somewhere and specifically have a conversation with someone and then say, who else in this room do you know that I should probably speak to and going around proactively and doing it can actually be you know, worth however many hours trying to create your strategy on LinkedIn, yeah, right? there is this, I don't know, what, like I don't think everyone wants to be an entrepreneur or a big figure or anything. I barely want to, like at one point, Island Networking was growing and people were like, maybe you should do this or you should get investment or blah, blah, blah. And I, was, and I was like, I had a bigger company where the profit was bigger and I had a lot of people that I had to manage and I have no desire doing that again. It was great, learn, learn lots, but that's not where I am. I don't have, you know, any, like, you know, like people can have their own, <laughs> yeah, sure. their own path. Yeah. Um, and I agree, going to an event, even all you do is show up it's great. You're going to hear from people. You're going to listen to new things. The key to getting unstuck in life is to listen to people that have nothing in common with you, usually, who disagree with you or who are going to say something that you have never thought about. Then something will go in your brain be like, oh, I didn't, you know. Mm. So it's this is really important. It's important 
for all your development, not just your professional development. Yeah, and to unpick it into the, the creative industries, obviously that's how you gain the information to understand maybe the world you're about to go into or mm-hmm. what you're interested in at an earliest stage as possible to find people, voices that excite you or interest you or, as you say, really don't sit well with you. Yeah, You gain so much from that information and i think that sort of asymmetric information in terms of the fallacy point of you know it undervalued underpaid uh under respected and all those kind of things i think we're getting better maybe as a sector at talking about the you know the the, the benefits in the broader supply chain of people who work with creative vendors or have creative customers and how they use those creative practices to boost their innovation and their uh, non-creative practice and also skilled labor in the creative industries yeah. right like the labor turnover if you're someone who's worked at a vfx company and then goes to work for another organization that isn't and you bring all that knowledge and that experience the effect that's going to have positively on that other company is is incredible but that's that sort of asymmetric information thing which i think is it really does plague the creative industries because so many people just look at it and think a painter or something yeah or as you say taylor swift those are like really edge cases yeah. <laughs> and we need to maybe be, be better at articulating the middle and the obvious stuff which is you know for every creative company there's maybe five or ten people who work in the supporting infrastructure for that company they're not the head designer or the founder but they earn a good living and they love what they do yeah and we need the uh, we also in the creative industries need the people who are running the payroll and doing the finance and helping the operation that all all of those things and there are sectors that exist now that the that are creative sectors that people don't even know how to get to like the gaming industry or right. and we there's so much that's evolving you know when i started in the music industry there was no spotify we were still recording live music dvds and cds kids if you know what that is but um i remember google brazil asked us to go to their offices to explain how youtube would work no way yeah i'm that old but i so it's like just, you need a you need a right to get uh, a check in the mail for yeah, that. Yeah, they you know they basically the, everything's changing all the time. So the professions that you think are the ones that might not even exist, you know. And look at all these people who are incredibly talented creating skits on thirty seconds. And yeah, there's lots to say about social media that's negative, but we can't deny that it's created a new type of talent, perhaps and of other creatives and people who are great at doing those things and so yeah you just can't stop those things and no and we had um alvin on from tag agency one of the earliest episodes um he works at he has a, a creative agency works with uh youth culture and brands to sort of blend those two worlds and the his, his constant expression of the idea of like the come up of young people saying they just wanted to like make money off like TikTok and all this content they were making and again like you you saying that thing about YouTube it seems unreal to think of that right but we do remember a time when these tools didn't exist these intermediaries didn't exist there were different intermediaries but if we then look forward to 20 years there'll be new versions of that and they could be places which are more representative and and do speak to the, the the kind of representative nature of the content that's being created if there are people on the inside in that support infrastructure, right? Yeah. The, the, the operating of the organization. And so, because you work with corporates as well as smaller companies, right? Do you find a, a sort of, certainly with the, the idea of the creative industries or how the creative industry is perceived and both ends of that spectrum, is it is it different? Yes, yeah? definitely. There is, in 
So the way the industry is structured in the UK, it's very different than what I was used to. So in the UK, you have this non-profit world, right? A lot of arts organizations are also non-profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that creates its own challenge. Um, I'm not saying it's bad or good. It's just different. So there is sort of this thing that people look at, oh, it's an arts organization. It's a non-profit. So it's like a hobby or it's not serious. And then there's like this mammoth like, Spotify and Google and TikTok and all the ad agencies and Ken Lion and Netflix. And so there's kind of difference between that creative industry with that creative industry where it's the same industry, right. you know? So do you think that definition is a problem? Yes. Mm. I never, I always have to explain to people that what the creative industries even are. There's just no understanding, even though I think it is still the fifth largest in the UK. Um, right. but we need to check the stats, but I think it is. And it's it, there because it's all those things together. So you have a tiny nonprofit gallery, like Mimosa gallery, and then you have Tate, you know, and they're the same sector, like the visual arts, I guess, yeah, and heritage yeah, yeah. section. Yeah, so sure, it, yeah. Um, and I think that is that, that adds to the difficulty of putting the value in it because, you know, I, come from a, a country where culture is not hasn't been valued for a long time or it's always on and off because Brazil had a dictator uh, military dictatorship for a long time we've you know it's a very recent democracy and it's a complicated country it's very in development lots of social issues so it's definitely a different structure than it is here I think the UK has a lot of structure for the creative industries, a lot more than what I was ever used to. And I see a lot of value in it, in how things uh, progress. But we need to fight for it because I can see that it's slipping yeah. <laughs> as well. But yeah, I think people understanding what it is, it's a good start, you know? Yeah. But if you were to say to someone who maybe doesn't have any real reverence for it, why we need to fight hard to save it, what would you say are the things that... I would just say, what do you do when you go home? Well, what do you do when you're on your way to the tube? Do you open a book? Do you listen to a podcast? Do you listen to music? Do you watch Netflix? Like, what what is it you do to have fun? And 99% of the things are going to be part of the creative industry. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it's like, what is, like, what is your life? Like, what, you know, I had a, a teacher once that said, we can talk about dates all you want, but at the end of the day, people are still using, you know, that artist or Shakespeare or whoever to explain how life was or how a certain era of the world used to be. Right. And it's because it has a very big value that is really hard to compound, but you can calculate the value in the creative industries. Like you know that whenever artists move somewhere, that area becomes wealthier. It, be- it becomes an area everyone wants to invest. It happened in Hackney and Shoreditch. It, hap- it happened even in Margate when you know Tracy Edmund went there and then the other galleries. New York, followed. Berlin, name it. Yeah, like, and you can actually see the value of those creative clusters that are reports about that. So you can sort of put a number to it for all the policymakers out there. Yeah. Or the people who don't believe in the inherent power of the creative industries and never watch TV, read a book, read anything and don't listen to music, which 
I don't know anyone like that, but if you are that person, even the people who design your clothes <laughs> are creative. So you do need them to exist. You do. And and, and I think it's to, to connect onto that point in terms of what people sort of see. And we talked about representation a bit. And again, another thing I think uh, I saw you talk about the, the sort of male dominated lineups at uh, festival right. season, I think it was. Um, what do you think the impact is of that sort of generally speaking as a, as a, sort of consistent thing that kind of comes up and what sort of effect do you think that has in terms of say those folks who women and non-binary folks who see those kind of lineups what effect do you think that has on their sort of value and worth and they how they see themselves in the world of creative industry yeah i think it's huge i think we need to you know in every industry that happens with the gender gap you know viola davis is always commenting about that how she has to fight for paychecks and parts and a lot of people with her curriculum if they were a different gender or perhaps a different ethnicity wouldn't have to or definitely don't have to in the same way we know that uh it's a very real thing uh when you're looking we are always looking for representation right everyone is looking to see themselves into something and when you see those stages and all the lineups are or the headliners are men and sometimes they're all the same ethnicity as well or the same country whatever, it creates a problem because you don't see yourself there. And also, it's very pragmatically speaking, you're not putting your money where your mouth is. It's all well and good to put in a flag on pride and slap it on your products or whatever, you know, like yeah. do a big woo and give a day off to your employers on International Women's Day, whatever it is they want to do it and bring them flowers. But... Money is what's going to make the difference because that's the currency we use in this world. Uh, at least in this world we're looking at, like the Western world, the UK, whatever, not the rest of the world as a whole because I don't have any way to know that. But if it's the currency of value, if you don't put your money where your mouth is, then you're actually not valuing those people in the same way. And we know, like Rihanna came and did that performance and she hired this amount of women or that. And we know, of course, there are allies. There are people trying to change. But I think it should be a minimum unequal split because it's insane to say that there couldn't be 50-50 headliners on anything. Like the a few years ago, there was the Venice Biennale, which is the art biennale, in um it was created by ralph rogoff who ha used to be i think had or something at the south bank center or the hayward gallery forgot his official title but anyway his i think was the first biennale in venice that was a 50 50 split in the living artists that were half women and half men or half identified as women and half as men and you know it, this was like what six years ago max like four i don't know but bananas because of course there are enough women who created visual arts in the world and so I think it's a problem and I think that is very easy to solve I think big festivals have all the resources to hire more people in their programming team who are diverse who then will be able to point out different people and be like look have you heard about this or that or in this community this is huge we could bring a whole new audience and etc so it's actually going to benefit everyone. I really don't understand. But you need people at every level in terms of representation so that that pipeline becomes equal. You know, 
and is yeah you can just slap like a slogan a slogan or something but you could do quotas there's an organization called the f list which lists all the women in the creative industries and there's in in music industry there's a lot of organizations out there so it's not lack of resources it's just <clears throat> laziness i think okay interesting so like do, so do you think in in a sense of left unchecked do you think that positive um momentum in that space could naturally proliferate or it needs policy support regulation where do you see that line it definitely needs regulation i think i think if you encourage people to do better uh it will be better like if we encourage i think there were some studies on the quotas of like forcing companies of certain size to have 50% of women in their boards or whatever they all performed a lot better they all managed to do it it's not a like they don't it's not like they don't exist um, I think policy needs to support change because it's hard to force people to change unless it hurts on their pocket. And, you know, even with something really basic, I remember, again, I'm slightly older than some people probably, but when I was growing up in Brazil, I remember the advertisements for the campaigns for people to wear um, seat belts because they wouldn't wear seat belts. Okay. And you, they had to start a fee. Like, oh, if you get caught, you're going to have to pay the fee for people to then start a process of like, oh, no, I automatically put the seatbelt on. You need to reinforce people somehow, ideally not with a fee, but I think if you can encourage the industry with policy, things will be better. And then you need to ensure that a few things are met, right, for diversity. So how diverse is your board or how diverse is your lineup or your headliners or your programmers, like whatever it is. And I'm saying this for bigger organizations, of course, it's and it's going to be hard to do that in every single organization. But what happens, I think, in the creative industries is that the smaller organizations suffer more for that than the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. Like, I think every organization that receives public funding should have some checks and balances when it comes to that. It should be like part of your report and, you know, auditing. Yeah. And it would be a lot better. You can just apply. There are so many tools out there that you can do. So well, I guess you're seeing it with ESG and things like that. But then I guess yeah. it can be sort of used as a as a shield or I don't know what greenwashing would be for the I. But in a sense, because I guess it could create that free rider problem of, some good signaling and optics and not yeah. fair reporting could mean that someone could go, look, we, we create product in this really inclusive way and look at all these things we're doing. And then in the back office, you, it's not because they're not accurately reporting on it. Yeah, but I think as ensuring leadership is diverse in some math metrics is going to be better than not. And I, I actually think you need to push for things to change and then deal with that and how you manage that. But I, I would say that the most important thing for all industries would be policy that ensures uh, either equal maternity and paternity leave or enforced paternity leave and more protection for uh, parents or moms in general. I think that would create a lot of change and definitely in leadership roles, and especially in public funding institution, having might like a quota of like, we need this amount of people to be from this you know, gender, at least, at least that, you know, right. to start somewhere. Because my hope, and this is just hope, is that once you have diverse people in bigger groups and leadership roles, 
they will bring more people with them and they will change to how the organization thinks. So hopefully that creates change in itself. It might not be a perfect way, but I think it's a way to start as opposed to just crossing your arms and being like, oh, it can be done yeah. because a lot of organizations have done it and have done it successfully. So right. it'll be messy, but we, we need to experiment to understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you do need support. You need, uh, yeah, you, you need support. I mean, it, the Internet weren't was funded by governments, you know? Like, of course. If in the beginning, no one was going to touch that because what's yeah, the yeah. option? Like, oh, it's definitely going to go wrong. We didn't, no one knew, you know, like NASA was like, you know, I mean, sure. you know how that's going now, but. Um, yeah, all the innovations that came from the. You the... need you need some policy to support people into trying at least to do the right thing. And then you can always course correct. But yeah, I think <laughs> diversity is has been already proven to most in most metrics that it's good for companies and good yeah. for everyone so there's not a lot of arguments against it especially in things like that like lineups and these big things make a big difference right like the if all the films you've ever seen are the exact same story with the exact same characters that look exactly the same one it's really boring and two it's a lot of people are going to watch that and be like, well, that's not me. I'm not interested. So you're literally excluding audience and money. So it makes no sense. You've really made me think of it in a, in a different way. And if we think about some of those trends, say flexible work or um, four-day work weeks, certain things like that, which the creative industry probably has a natural... Um, advantage to deploying it did mm -hmm. sort of before it became common in many ways because creativity isn't something that you can meter you know it's very much a flow um and so maybe people can come in nine to five in the support infrastructure but whether they're in or not or you know all of these things which are against the sort of industrial revolution form of work you know working in the factory it's not sort of what we do anymore but we still hold on to a lot of these things just because that's the way things were. But maybe the creative industries has an opportunity, to your point, around better representation of speaking truth to power. And it, I guess it would be a lot to ask because it isn't the broadest shoulders, many of these subsectors, are they? Yeah. They have very thin margins, etc. But they seem to have naturally been the ones that have been the harbingers of change. So maybe this is a space where they can accumulate and compound by saying, look, we're willing to do this because we see the benefit of it. And it naturally sort of does happen quite a lot here. Yeah. So let's be proactive, push that forward. And then you can see how much it's working because, you know, our, our GVA is growing or the jobs enabled growing, all these stats that you want to see. Yeah. And we didn't do it at the harm of our margin. We did it because we just brought the best people in and it was fair and representative. Yeah. And the fact that the industry keeps growing and keeps being one of the, you know, industry that grows the fastest in spite of all of that it's a big thing but it's also still a very exclusive industry when it comes to like demographics so we do need to change that because then you see things like the way the media handles news for instance like who mm. defines that agenda you know all those things that i think we need to think about like if you have diverse people in those leadership positions, then change, things will change. The stories will change. And I'm not, you know, being trying to be like woke police here. I'm actually trying to advocate for it, like a pragmatic yeah. argument for it, because I think there are ways 
to support it. I don't know the exact solution, but there is a lot there are a lot of people fighting for a change in policy. There's a really great group called in the UK called Pregnant and Screwed. I don't know if I can say you that. You can, you can you can lean into those okay. terms. We're on the internet. There's yeah, Pregnant and Screwed, then there's the Fawcett Society. There's quite a few organizations that are trying to change policy in many levels. They're not particularly around the creative industries, but those exist as well. And you can get involved. And even the Women in the World Festival, um, Judy Kelly, I think Judy Kelly is the director, was the director or the founder, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And she said that once. She said it was a... a the auditorium in the South Bank Center, so huge auditorium, and they asked, like, how many women here believe that they will see a world with no gender gap or a world with gender equity in their future? And literally two people raised their hands, and she said, well, if you don't believe it, we're not going to make it happen. So I think you need to yeah. <laughs> have Ch a bit of belief. changeable pessimists and optimists. We need yeah. a, you know, we need a lot of people to get on yeah. board and buy in here. Yeah, but as I said, my my background at the, end, at the end of the day was in international relations and in politics. So I know policy needs to go a, you know win par with the civil society sort of like developing sure. things. I think they need to work together. Yeah, on the right sort of trends that are already there. Yeah, the and failures. support each other. Like there is no way. Like a very simple thing I remember, <laughs> like funding, funding applications. For a while, funding applications for film, for instance, would ask you to write down how many films you needed, like actual films. because that's, Roles of film. Yeah, how because that's how you calculate how much money you're going to give to that person. And sure, some people still film that way, but most people won't. And so now... If you're just someone who has never shot a film and you're just analyzing budget somewhere in a funding application, you're not going to understand anything. You need to, you know, keep up. Yeah. <laughs> so there's even things like that, very simple legislation when it comes to like funding or how do you assess success? You need people to converse, right? So that that gets translated. Yeah. It's like last mile solutions like choice architecture and things just to make yeah. it a little bit easier for folks who aren't. Uh, seasoned in that space to obtain it because yeah. that is what happens it's sort of an accumulated advantage isn't it people who have done it before get better get better get the resources and yeah they just naturally seem to keep winning all the time um but yeah I, so i guess in terms of we, we've come up with quite a few solutions i think in terms <laughs> of uh or areas of exploration at least and i think um that that idea of kind of enforcing the flexibility and the work from home kind of structure i think and, and how we can put a structure around that i think is really important a definitional point around the creative industries or the culture and creative industries and i think that sort of bottom-up um approach certainly in terms of the school curricula how they define these things and helping mm -hmm. that information to flow through to get buy-in because i think at the moment it feels very top down which is maybe problematic and i think the, the maybe the chaotic one around um sort of more policy and regulation around um uh, d and i and then kind of how that you know, how that's incentivized and how the impact of that's measured. I think it's really important. And maybe the cultural and creative industries can be um, uh, a forebearer of that change. Hopefully, yeah. I, think, I think there's a chance there. That would be amazing. Hey, so put the world to rights. But um, <laughs> if anyone wants to uh, keep up with you, I mean, thank you so much for offering your time and, and your experience. I think it's, it's a really interesting area of the creative industries when we think about mentoring, networking, 
jobs and opportunities it's it's so foundational and i think if we don't address some of these deep underlying problems we're, we're really sort of swimming against the tide but if anyone was is interested in what it is you do um would like to get involved somehow what's the best places to connect with you and what opportunities do you have coming up so yeah we have our website which is islandnetworking.uk over there you'll find all our social media we have tons of free resources to download um on a lot of things we have two amazing career guides that were made in partnership with our mentors so you get to get all of their resources and tips as well then we have a podcast we have a ton of things we share opportunities on our social but the best place is our newsletter that's where we announce most things we at the moment are only sending two newsletters a month so it's not a big thing but we send a roundup of opportunities across the creative sector, interesting news. And then we also have a job roundup. We have a job board that you can check out. So all of those things for the community at large. Um, we run events and workshops, so you always post them there as well. Summer tends to be slightly not many events. I mean, I've done, a, I've done a few more corporate workshops this June, and um, I've done one I have done two this week alone, but um, yeah, if anyone is in a company and wants to organize a networking event or a mentoring program or talk about any strategy like that for their company or their community uh, to reach out, I'm there. And I'm on LinkedIn a lot complaining about all these things and renting. I also post some cool stuff, but in general, I rent a lot about the value of the creative industries in the hopes that someone will hear I mean, you heard it, I so heard there it. you go. Signal. Um, you can come say hi. I'm there. Uh, my name is Isabel Sachs, like the bank, Goldman, minus the gold uh, at this point. We never know. After this conversation, everything will change. Um, but yeah, that's the best it's the best way to find us and get in touch. And yeah. I think um, after that, you're going to have a rap career afterwards. <laughs> that was amazing. I was like, this is just hitting. I have to explain to a lot of people my name, so I... But that was the greatest uh, explanation of a name I've maybe mm, ever heard, so... Yeah, it's good. Congrats. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, and uh, yeah, we'll put all the links in the show notes, but yeah, Isabel, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. 